0: Our text for this morning's message is found in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue as his custom was on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray
1: together. Lord Jesus Christ, would you be here to say that again today? That these might not be words about what you did or others will do. With words that are coming true in this hour. Be here, Lord, to say today, this release, this recovery, this liberty is fulfilled in your hearing. Grandfather, I pray that your Son be exalted in our midst as the great liberator. In his name we pray. Amen. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus reads from Isaiah 61. And then he sits down, he looks around, and he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now they may have thought, Well, here's another John the Baptist. Somebody who's announcing that the Messiah is almost here. The kingdom is at hand. One day, very soon, there's going to be this grand liberation. Romans are going to be gone And the new age will be here. That's not what Jesus meant. We know it's not because in Luke 7, verse 20, John the Baptist sends to Jesus and says, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus responds with words, some of which come from Isaiah 61, like this. Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. What Jesus meant when he came into the synagogue at Nazareth was that the Messiah is here today in this room. The hoped-for king, the son of David, the liberator, The ruler of the world, the bringer of justice and peace, Messiah, has come. But the way he quotes Isaiah 61 shows that there's a mystery in the coming of the Messiah. This is a short text for a synagogue worship service. Why did he close the book so soon? You go back and read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Jesus said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and he stops. Isaiah keeps going and says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, why didn't Jesus finish the verse? Finish the sentence? That's the mystery. The mystery of the kingdom or the mystery of the coming of the King is that it is a two-act drama, not a one-act drama. And the Old Testament prophets saw the drama whole and didn't separate the two acts by centuries, which we have come to do in retrospect because of the mystery that the Messiah was to come first one way, second another way. First, an acceptable year of the Lord is proclaimed, a year of grace, a year of patience, and then a day of vengeance will come after a space of indefinite time. Jesus said in John 12, If anyone hears My sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but that the world might be saved. There's the acceptable year of the Lord. And He goes on, He who rejects Me and does not receive My sayings has a judge. The word that I have spoken We'll judge him on the last day. That's the day of vengeance. And so we now live in a day of grace, in a day of patience, in a day of postponement of the day of vengeance. As Paul says in Second Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. The day of grace and patience and the postponement of vengeance while God offers amnesty to the souls that are rebellious. Like us. But when the day of salvation finally comes and the appointed time for the Father is here, the day of vengeance will come and Isaiah 61 2 will be completed. Because the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1 7, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So, what Jesus says in Luke 4, 18 and 19 is that I am the Messiah, I am here. Nevertheless, I am here in a mysterious way that you hadn't expected, not bringing the day of vengeance yet but proclaiming an acceptable time, a year, an extended period of time of the Lord, in which there will be foretastes of glory and in which there will be salvation for those who believe. Now, we want to look at the good news that he brings to the poor in that time, but before we do that, let me give you two reasons why I think this verse 18 and 19 is an agenda for the church and not just for Jesus. Reason number one. At the end of his life, after the resurrection, just before he ascended to the Father, Jesus said to the disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. In other words, the sending of the church into the world after the departure of Jesus was to be an extension, an elongation of the ministry that the Father had sent Jesus to perform in the world. So if He says, here's what I've come to do, the church ought to perk up their ears and say, that's what we've come to do. The second reason I think that that's the case is that we are called the body of Christ. Just as our bodies are what people see When they look at our personality, so the church is what people see when they look around the world for Jesus' personality. As our bodies put our will into visible action, the church, as the body of Christ, puts His will into visible action. Therefore, the plan and the agenda that Jesus had in His physical body on the earth is now implemented by the church as His corporate Body in the world. So, every time you read what Jesus did or said, give attention to two things what he did for you that you couldn't do for yourself, and the example he gave to you, which you can copy. And everything he said and did is, in some sense, a twofold work it is salvation for you and illustration for you to you. Everything Jesus did is a ground of faith and something to be copied. First Peter put it like this, chapter 2. Christ suffered for you, giving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. Suffered for you. That's what you couldn't do for yourself. Paying a price we never could have paid for our redemption. Illustration for you or example to you, that's illustration and that we can copy. We can't redeem anybody. We can't die on the cross for the world. But we can take up our cross, be crucified to the world, follow Jesus on the Calvary road of suffering and lead people to the one who can redeem And that's what he means, I think, by suffering for us and leaving us an example to do what he did. So, to encourage our faith in what he did for us and to stir us up to action to copy him, let's follow him in his action and words here in Luke 4. But maybe we better back up a ways and walk through what we've seen in the last couple of Sundays. Luke one thirty five, he was conceived by the holy spirit i want you to see the crucial role that the holy spirit plays in jesus ministry here luke 135 conceived by the holy spirit and then chapter 3 verse 22 at 30 years of age anointed by the holy spirit at his baptism the holy spirit descends like a dove to signify god's approval and love of him and to Fire him for the ministry he's about to undertake. And then this amazing work of the Spirit in Luke 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. You remember in the wilderness what Satan tempted Jesus to do was to forsake the Calvary Road and his path to the cross and instead try to get his glory by some short time cut and he resisted by the word of God and the power of the spirit and he came forth like silver and I want you to see a contrast between the power he was offered and the power he came out with from the wilderness you remember what Satan offered him he said if you're the son of God that is you got power use your rightful power and authority to turn this rock into bread satisfy your hunger get the normal pleasures that are appropriate for life then he said use your power to submit yourself to me and you can have all the glory that this world will offer as a world ruler. And then he said, And surely you want the acclaim of Messiah, so you can flutter down into the door of the temple and be caught on eagle's wings, and everybody will say, This is it! And Jesus resisted every temptation to grasp after glory and power in that way. And look what verse 14 says. And Jesus returned in the power of of the Spirit into Galilee. That's no accident. He refused to seek pleasure and power the way the world and Satan offered it, and the result was the enjoyment of the omnipotent power of God. What a trade-off Satan always offers us. The same thing now is true for you. James said, resist the devil and He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and Almighty God will draw near to you. Every pleasure and every power offered to you in the way of sin will destroy your pleasure in the long run and rob you from divine power. But if you resist and draw near to God, He will come to you and the power of the Holy Spirit will make everything you do fruitful and a hundredfold will be given you what you think you've given up by resisting Satan's temptations. You were made for God and there is nothing more satisfying in all the world than to be empowered by the fullness of God. Don't sell your soul for a bowl of pottage. So Jesus returns like David. He has bound Goliath in the wilderness. And he is now ready to go on the offensive to rout the Philistines and liberate the captives of the Israelites, as it were. And he comes into Nazareth. And he chooses a text that will show in what power he is still working. Don't make any mistake. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now, do you see how relevant that makes this text for us? Because when Jesus ascended to the Father, He poured that same Spirit out upon everybody who believes. It's yours today, that same anointing, that same power to follow Jesus in His ministry. In the wilderness, defense by the Spirit. In the synagogue, offense by the Spirit. And then the rest of His life, He was on the attack and achieved victory at the cross. And so what he's doing here, I think, is sounding a trumpet for us to jump up out of the trenches, take our place at the side of our commander-in-chief, and to lead us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Two weeks ago, Noel and I, you remember, took our day off to do some uh, surveying of the computer scene, personal computers. And we learned how easy it is to be so entranced by man-made machines that spiritual reality can become clouded. Well, this past Thursday, we had the very opposite experience. We spent about six hours with Leighton Ford and Gottfried Osei-Mensa, the leaders of the Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization down at uh, Hope Presbyterian Church, And the Lord is very good to us because if he allows us to have a day off that obscures and clouds the true issue of the battle that's raging around us, he gives us another day off in which he shows us with unbelievable clarity the horrible scenes of battle carnage in the world. Leighton Ford works with Billy Graham and donates his time to the Sun Committee, I think, said that there are four major fronts on which we should fight in the next decades globally as a church. And I want to tell you what these four are, and then lead into the way Jesus fights. One, urban centers. By the year 2000, over half of the world's population will live in big cities. Mexico City will probably surpass 31 million people in the year 2000. And today, there are people under 14 years old in Mexico City, as big as the population of New York City. Anybody up for children's ministries? The cities must be a major front in our global strategy. Bethlehem is a church in the city, and with proximity comes accountability. If you were to ask in the Baptist General Conference, what are the ten churches that have accountability to train people and strategize where they are and around the globe for urban ministries Bethlehem would have to be in that group which is an agenda for us and I am so delighted that many of you have a burden for this city and I hope that we can do great things together in the next decade for Minneapolis and through doing it for Minneapolis equip people for ministry in Jakarta Bogota Calcutta Second, Islam is going to be a much greater challenge than Marxism, as Leighton Ford sees it. In his travels, he says, the only place where people are popularly enamored by Marxism is where they haven't lived under it very long, mainly in Asia. In the Eastern Bloc, there's a great deal of disenchantment. Islam, on the other hand, has 750 million adherents in 152 countries, and the building fundamentalist zeal of the conservative Muslims is extending their influence both religiously and politically everywhere. Presently, there are only 500 Protestant missionaries battling with the gospel on the 750 million member front of Islam. Now, if you think that sounds discouraging and hopeless, listen to this promise from Isaiah 19.24. In that day, says the Lord, Israel will be a third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. It is as hopeless as God is hopeless, and His word is untrue. Third, Ford sees the need to re-evangelize the secular West the widespread influence which Christianity once had in this country collapsed in an astonishingly short period of time historically. We never were a Christian nation, but it wasn't long ago that the evangelical presence in this country significantly influenced all our institutions, all our ways of thinking, and all of our moral codes, and it's gone. Now, what a shame if we mount the forces, cross the seas, evangelize a hidden people, and in a mere half century have the whole thing collapse into secularism because we didn't know what happened at home. The revitalization of the Western church and the re-evangelization of secular Western man should be priorities in the next 25 years as a part of our global strategy. Fourth and finally, Ford sees the battlefront in the next years in the poor of the world. We may quibble about whether there's hunger in America. There's no quibbling about whether there's hunger in Africa. Ford says in his travels, and in talking recently with a man returned from Ghana, there are 150 million people on the brink of starvation in Africa today. And if you go to Ghana, you have to take your food. It is so bad. You don't know if you'll be able to get any. In Ghana, by the way, there are four times as many Christians as there are Muslims. Lest you think that's some kind of uh, penalty for an unchristianized nation. Their life hangs in the clouds. Will it rain? Six hours we spend on Thursday with with them, about two dozen other pastors, and then we went home and we read a sermon together that night. I read a sermon from uh, Jonathan Edwards to Noel. I'll try that sometime. Preached in 1733, a sermon entitled The Christian Pilgrim, and what he said in it was this, quote, We should desire heaven more than the comforts and enjoyments of this life. Our hearts ought to be loose from these things as that of a man on a journey. These things are only lent to us for a little while to serve a present turn, but we should set our hearts on heaven as our inheritance forever. So when Thursday was over, my heart was saying to the Lord, O Lord, I know that my life is a journey and that it is very, very short compared to eternity. And I know that this world is a battlefield of indescribable carnage, a conveyor belt of spiritual and physical corpses. I know, Lord that there is incomparable glory and joy promised to those who suffer with You on the Calvary Road, doing good to people. And I know, O God, how prone my heart is to retreat from the battle, to try to have the ease of heaven now, not join You in combat, Guard me, O God, from this folly. Keep my mind awake to eternity. Give me the compassion of Christ for the lost. Thrill me with cosmic conflict with Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Put me on the offense and keep me faithful till Jesus comes or until I die. And then last night, Noel and I opened our book by Ruth Tucker from Jerusalem to Erie and Jaya, and we read the story of James Chalmers and his ministry to the New Hebrides and New Guinea in 1870 to 1901, and how he went ashore unbelievably brave. They clubbed him to death, cut him in pieces, and ate him before the people on the boat. And we thought to ourselves, hmm, and we complain when the thermostat in the church goes too high. Luke four eighteen to 19 gives us our mission, brothers and sisters, with Jesus Christ. Release the captives. Get recovery of sight for the blind. Liberate the oppressed. Everywhere! Now, there are two misuses that this text is immediately subject to. One is to take the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed and restrict that to physical, social realities. Jesus said in Revelation 3.17, You say, I'm rich. You say, I need nothing. I have prospered, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, arrogant, self-satisfied, wealthy Americans are utterly Poverty stricken according to Jesus' assessment. They are miserable in God's eyes and we ought to see them that way too and have the compassion of Christ for them the same way Jesus had compassion on little, old, rich, fat, mean Zacchaeus. But there's another misuse of this text and that's to say what I just said. And then sit back And not feel any compassion and take no action on behalf of those who are materially poverty stricken. Those who have the physical disease of blindness and many such diseases. Those who stand behind unjustly visible iron bars. And those who are oppressed by human power brokers. Well, at Bethlehem, we must not make either of those mistakes. Neither the over-materialization of this Word, nor the over-spiritualization of this Word. We must feel compassion for the rich who are bringing eternal misery upon themselves by love of comfort, and compassion for the poor who, in addition to their eternal plight, are smashed down often by worldly circumstances. Let's look at some examples of captives, blind, and oppressed. I don't think we should shirk one minute from saying that the best thing any of you can do for any human being in the world, near or far, rich or poor, is to release them from the captivity of sin, sin, to open their eyes from the blindness of unbelief, unbelief, and to give them liberty from the oppression of Satan, Satan. Efforts at social improvement that neglect this great spiritual goal will be viewed by poor people in hell in ages to come as a horrible form of ecclesiastical malpractice. It is true that when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, his life changes. But it is also true that the way to win people to the glories of Christ and the magnificence of His character and His power and His love is by showing them Christ and what He did and the kinds of things He aims for us to experience. A verbal witness to the value of Jesus Christ without a radical life of commitment to the things He stood for, will win converts. Carbon copies of the culture. It's happening everywhere in evangelistic circles. Therefore, lifestyles of simplicity for the sake of love are an essential part of making disciples and not just church members. Specifically, To follow Jesus in proclaiming release to the captives, we should be mobilized to free people from the captivity of alcohol, the captivity of drugs, the captivity of pornography and sexual desires and fantasies, the captivity of homosexuality, the captivity of gluttony and overeating, It ought to grieve us that children of the king or people created in the image of God are in the bondage of foreign powers and our zeal for the glory of God ought to want to procure their release and mobilize us to that end. And there are a lot of other kinds of captivity I could mention. One other. In Friday's Tribune, there was an editorial that said hundreds of people are under arrest and have disappeared in El Salvador. All independent press and broadcasting have been destroyed by the army and the oligarchy. What is left of the press is controlled by the hard right hand and the armed forces. Now, whether you think the elections in El Salvador today are a sham or not, here's a truth. There are right-wing and left-wing governments in this world that... Imprison people and dispense with people in a way that if it happened to your family would enrage you. And therefore, the global application of the golden rule is that you've got to stand up and say something if you see that happening. And do something insofar as you can. I don't think it involves violence think if you study what Christian response to imprisonment is in the book of Acts, you find mighty prayer and miracles and outspokenness in Philippi, for example. Martin Niemöller, a German pastor, 92 years old, died three weeks ago. He was a German Lutheran pastor who had survived the Dachau concentration camp and the whole Third Reich. He wrote in Germany, they came first for the Communists. And I didn't speak up, because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up, because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up, because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up, because I was a Protestant. And then they came for me. By that time, there was no one left to speak of. But the followers of Jesus will pray and speak and work not only against unjust captivity, but also against disease. Many of you ought to become doctors and nurses, especially where there is misery and not much medicine. Others of you already do visit the sick, care for them and strengthen them. Others will seek the gift of faith and healing and pray that God deliver people miraculously from their bondage to blindness and other diseases. But nobody, no follower of Jesus will be indifferent and callous to people who are physically unhealthy. Freely you have been made healthy, Really, give it away. And finally, we follow Jesus to set at liberty the oppressed. Strewn through the Bible, there are references to orphans, widows, and sojourners. These are examples of what is meant by the oppressed. It warms my heart a lot when I see so many of you adopting children and foster parenting. And when I see so many old and young joining hands to help Rollin and Dolores in visiting, shut-ins, and elderly, it warms my heart when Pytun Hotamart forms house churches over here on Portland among the Asians and strives for their evangelism and their help in their daily struggles. It warms my heart when I hear of young people planning to have special English clashes for them, both to minister here and equip people to do the same thing overseas in teaching English as a second language. I am glad as a pastor that we spent $15,000 to make this church completely handicap access and we can put that little wheelchair in our advertisements now in the past three weeks in the newspaper. We had a wedding here yesterday and there were at least three people who would not have been able to come to hear the Word of God and to celebrate that, had we not been handicapped access. I was glad when so many of you last week attended your caucus and supported resolutions in behalf of the most severely punished and disadvantaged and oppressed minority in this country, namely the unborn. When the Spirit of the Lord is upon us and He anoints us, we follow Jesus. We follow him in the release of captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and the giving of liberty to the oppressed, as long as the acceptable year of the Lord lasts. And when it's over, and it may be soon, then the day of vengeance and the day of reward will come, and the tables will be turned.